following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Eurovant. Thank you for joining us today at Live from AUA 2021 to talk about currently available agents for overactive bladder, as well as third line therapies and the current data regarding outcomes to facilitate proper patient counseling. My name is David Ginsberg. I'm a professor of clinical urology and director of FPMRS at the USC Department of Urology in Los Angeles. And I am pleased to be your moderator for today's discussion. I'm here today with three wonderful, amazing panelists who actually are also very good friends of mine and we are all disappointed we can't be with anybody in person. We're here to happy to be here with you virtually. First is Dr. Vic Nitti, professor of urology and obstetrics and gynecology and the Shlomo Raj Charan Urology as well as the Chief of Female Public Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He is an authority on urodynamics, medical and surgical therapies for urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, female pelvic reconstructive surgery, and lower urinary tract dysfunction. Dr. Nitti recently completed his tenure as AUA Education Chair, and in 2015, he received the AUA AUA's Victor Palatano Award for Expertise and Contribution in Urodynamics, Medical and Surgical Therapies for Urinary Incontinence, Female Pelvic Reconstruction, and Voiding Dysfunction. Dr. Kathleen Kobashi is the current Division Chief of Urology at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, though she is moving to Texas in just a few weeks to take on the position as Chair of the Department of Urology at Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. Kobashi was the chair of the AUA SUFU SUI guidelines and is a mentor for the AUA Young Leadership Program. Her research interests include patient-centered outcomes and management of complications related to pelvic floor reconstruction. Dr. Eric Rovner, professor of urology at Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Rovner is a past president of SUFU, as are both Drs. Kobashi and Nitti, and his research interests include the study of voiding dysfunction urinary incontinence, neurogenic bladder, and genitourinary reconstruction. Welcome to Drs. Nitti, Kobashi, and Rogner. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Now, we're gonna talk about overactive bladder. It is estimated that up to one in six adults have overactive bladder. Symptoms of OAB include urinary frequency, urinary urgency, and urgency urinary incontinence. We know that the quality of life of overactive bladder patients can be significantly impacted by these lower urinary tract symptoms. We also know that up to 70% of patients will experience some degree of improvement with the various treatments we have for overactive bladder. However, many patients don't get started on treatments, including behavioral and pelvic floor therapy, and oral therapies such as anticholinergics and beta-3 agonists. And if they do, there can be issues, issues with things like persistence. It is well documented that the long-term continuation rate for oral overactive bladders is suboptimal. 
There is always a concern that patient expectations may play a role in regard to these issues. It's very important that we as clinicians set up appropriate expectations. Also can be issues with side effects, primarily seen with anticholinergics, and these side effects can include dry mouth, cognition, and issues related to cognition. And one of the other issues we see is escalation of therapy or a lack thereof, meaning if one therapy does not adequately improve symptoms, further therapy, additional therapy is not always offered. Questions regarding this include what is the right therapy for each patient and when is it time to try something additional or different? So let's start with diagno the diagnosing overactive bladder. Dr. Nitti, can you discuss what the AUA SUFU overactive bladder guidelines recommend in regards to, can be a multi-part question, the minimal evaluation required to diagnose overactive bladder? What additional tools you will use at times when initially evaluating patients with suspected overactive bladder or possibly later after initial therapies have failed? And when, if ever, do you decide to use some of these tools such as avoiding diary, measurement of post-void residual uroflow, urodynamics with pressure flow study, and cystoscopy? Well, thanks, David. And I think that's a a great place to start. I think that the diagnosis of overactive bladder in a straightforward patient can be made very easily. It can be made with history, physical examination, and a urine analysis that shows that there's no evidence of microscopic hematuria, infection, or anything else that you might be concerned about. So that's the minimal evaluation. Uh, and if there are no suspicious um, things in that minimal evaluation, one can certainly start to consider treating patients for overactive bladder. However, there are a number of other very simple things that can be done as an adjunct to, those, uh, to that very simple history, physical, and urine analysis. Uh, one of the most common things that we will utilize is a bladder diary. And a bladder diary is simply the patient recording intake, as well as output, number of voids, number of nocturic episodes, uh, et cetera. This can be extremely helpful in certain situations. For example, a patient who has primary or who, who primarily complains of nocturia, or a patient in whom you are suspicious from their history that there may be um, an excess intake of fluid. Uh, or in the patient where you simply, there's things in their history that aren't quite matching up and you want to confirm by a diary what their functional bladder capacity is, what their total urine output is, and if it's associated with excess intake of fluid. So that's a simple, easy, uh, essentially free thing that we can do for our patients. Other simple things are measurements of a post-void residual. And I think that if there's any suspicion that the patient may have issues emptying their bladder, that a measurement of a post-void residual via a, a bladder scanner and ultrasound is a very simple and reasonable thing to do. As we become more advanced, we think about things like uh, uroflometry. Euro and I will utilize uroflow in situations where I suspect that the patient may not be emptying their bladder normally and that that abnormal emptying may be 
uh, a cause for their overactive bladder or associated with their overactive bladder and where it may uh, allow, may make a difference in how I approach that patient. Lastly, you mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned urodynamics and cystoscopy. Let's start with urodynamics. For me, and, and I think everybody's a little bit different, but for me, the primary role of urodynamics in the patient with overactive bladder, I would say twofold. Number one, and this is in the non-neurogenic overactive bladder. Number one would be if I suspect there's avoiding phase dysfunction, uh, and I want to know exactly what that is. And number two, if for some reason I expect there might be an issue with high storage pressures and compliance, but you're going to pick that up in the history, history of radiation, history of tuberculosis, something along those lines. Um, I don't find urodynamics to be all that useful in a patient who empties their bladder normally, at least in the female patient. In the male patient where there's issues potentially with prostatic obstruction, urodynamics will play much more of a role. And I think cystoscopy is reserved for, obviously, if there's any sign of microscopic hematuria. And then when you go down the line for the more, the patients that are more refractory to standard therapies, if you are concerned that there may be something in their bladder that's the cause of, um, of their overactive bladder, it's certainly reasonable to look. Great. Vic, let me just ask a follow-up question on the voiding diary. How many days do you ask patients to do it? And, you know, if you look at diary is one that helps you diagnose, but also one to help you evaluate improvement over time. Do you tend to use it more for the diagnosing or to follow improvement? And how, how, what's the minimum amount of days you'd like to get patients to do a diary? So I ask the patient to do it for three days. Now, there is data that suggests that a one-day diary is as good as a three-day diary. I go for three days. Um, because it's not uncommon that perhaps one of those days isn't quite perfect. Um, having said that, many patients give me beautiful three-day diaries, and the, the, each of the days usually correlates. I always ask the patient if this was a typical day for them or if there was something more unusual about it. I would say I usually use it for diagnosis. Um, Occasionally, we'll use it for response to treatment. And I think when you need to document response to treatment to certain things like neuromodulation, although in those cases, it may not be necessary for the patients to continue to measure volume. But I guess I would use it in follow-up in patients who weren't improving and I was concerned or I thought that the answer to that lack of improvement might be found in the diary. Great. So yesterday, there was a discussion in the plenary with doctors Diokno and Marklin and Diane Newman that discussed behavioral therapies for overactive bladder and urgency urinary incontinence in the geriatric patient. So a few questions regarding this. What is behavioral therapy? You are not trained as a physical therapist. None of us are in this panel. How do you go about offering it to your patients? Do you offer behavioral and pelvic floor physical therapy to everyone you see with overactive bladder? Or do you think that there are patients that are more likely to do better or worse in regard to these therapies? And what were the highlights from the plenary session in regard to these therapies in that, that patient population? Okay, well, for, we'll start with your first question. What is behavioral therapy? And obviously, in its name, it, it's you're changing behavior, and specifically, you're changing behavior 
that might affect overactive bladder. So the things that a person can do in changing their behavior is the amount or the timing of fluid intake, diet, uh, weight loss has been associated with improvement in overactive bladder symptoms, particularly incontinence, better management of bowels if the patient has significant constipation, um, that is a behavioral therapy that might help them. And then there are, we also consider pelvic floor exercises to be part of behavioral therapy. And as you said, I am not a physical therapist. So the first thing that I do when I examine anybody with overactive bladder is I see if they can um, voluntarily contract their pelvic floor muscles. And if they can do that, then I think that they are candidates for self-start of behavioral therapy if they choose to do that. And I have a handout that I give them with instructions on how to do it, how often to do it. And I'll tell you, there are many protocols out there, but it's sort of a, a, a mix of things that have been shown to be effective. And I'll offer that to the patient if we decide that they'd like to do behavioral therapy and pelvic floor exercises. If they cannot do a voluntary pelvic floor muscle contraction and they are interested in learning that, then uh, that's when I would send them to a physical therapist. And if they can't identify their muscles, the physical therapist also can use techniques like biofeedback or electrical stimulation to help them along with that. I always tell the patients, the work that you'll do is not with the physical therapist, it's on your own, but the physical therapist will be there to, to guide you and make sure that you're doing it uh, appropriately. I would say I offer behavioral therapy to all patients, but clearly there are some patients with more severe incontinence where the likelihood that behavioral therapy alone is going to work is low. Now, nevertheless, if they choose to do that before going on to medications and other things, it's perfectly reasonable. Also, it's perfectly reasonable to use behavioral therapy as a supplement to medications. And I know that uh, Eric's going to talk about medications in a moment, but behavioral therapy can be used uh, as a supplement. I think the patients most likely to respond to behavioral therapy, and this may sound silly, but the ones that are most likely to do it, and they will often self-identify. Uh, when There are certain patients that will tell you, I'm just not going to do that, um, or it's unlikely that I'm going to do that. And even if you tell them how important it is, they might not do it. So I think those are the best patients. We talked a little bit about the highlights of the plenary session yesterday. I think there were a couple of take-home messages for me. One was that um, uh, Diane Newman highlighted a study that was published in 2018 where they did group behavioral therapy, where they took a number of patients and taught them behavioral therapies together in a group and found that that was more effective than simply handing them some literature and saying, go ahead and do that. So if you're in a kind of practice that leads itself to group learning, that would be reasonable. I think they also stressed the use of behavioral therapies in combination with other therapies. For example, in combination with medication, or even in combination with some of the third line therapies that, that Kathleen's gonna talk about. So, um, and, and also they highlighted trying to choose the right patient. And I think another take home message is 
from that was to really give, give it a shot, explain it to your patients and at least give them the opportunity to adapt behavioral techniques, whether it be alone or as a supplement to, to other treatments for overactive bladder. Great, thank you very much. So let's transition to talking about the oral therapies that Vic had mentioned. Eric, you have a course with Drs. Alan Lean and Chris Chappell, Contemporary Pharmacotherapy <clears throat> for OAB 2021, Monotherapy and Combined Pharmacotherapy to Optimize Treatment, that really covers the gamut of pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. One of the course objectives is to find the similarities and differences between the various oral pharmacotherapies for overactive bladder. So Eric, can you speak to how these oral therapies are similar, how they are different, how these similarities and differences impact their medication choice when starting patients on oral medications for overactive bladder, and what other patient-related characteristics may impact your choice of oral pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. Thanks, David. Uh, and I want to thank you for the invitation. I want to thank the AUA for putting this together on such short notice. Uh, I'm sure this was quite a, quite a task for the AUA to put this meeting on. It's gone very well so far. And again, I want to thank you uh, uh, for the invitation. Uh, again, uh, we, we do put on a course at the AUA. Uh, it's a two-hour course. I'm going to try to condense everything in a course uh, in five or 10 minutes. is going to be somewhat difficult. Obviously, there are books written on on similarities and similarities and differences um, uh, within uh, the OAB pharmacotherapy compendium, uh, so I'll, I'll 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 try to be brief. Um, there are similarities and differences within the class of OAB medications, uh, uh, and then similarities and differences between the various classes and the agents within each of those classes. Let's look at the two major classes of OAB pharmacotherapy. Uh, so there's the anti-muscarinics or anticholinergics. Uh, a class which has been around since described by Lapides in 1975, uh, believe it or not, although there wasn't even an OAB uh, terminology back then. Uh, and then the other class is uh, beta-3 uh, agonists. Obviously, the, the two agents, uh, the two classes, I should say, are quite similar in a number of ways. Uh, they're both indicated uh, for overactive bladder with uh, symptoms of urgency, urgent continence, and, and frequency. Um, multiple studies, uh, probably at this point, several hundred studies uh, on these uh, agents uh, encompassing uh, tens of thousands of patients have demonstrated uh, wonderful uh, efficacy uh, and uh, excellent safety. Um, so so in, in that regard, the indications, the safety profiles, uh, the efficacy profiles are, 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 um, are, are, are pretty similar. Um, most of the drugs currently available are, are daily agents. Uh, that's taken once a day. Uh, still, uh, uh, there is a three-time-a-day ditropan uh, and twice-a-day trospium uh, still available. Uh, but um, uh, most of the drugs in this class, at least uh, the non-generic medications, are in fact daily medications. It's important to realize that we look at similarities and, and differences, which I'll touch on in just a moment. There are very few head-to-head -head studies looking at these agents, uh, uh, that is, uh, there are no uh, direct comparisons between the two currently approved beta-3 agonists, uh, 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 currently available in the United States, I should say, and, and very few head-to-head -head, uh, studies amongst the anti-muscarinics. Uh, and, and even when we try to compare uh, studies looking at similarities and differences in, in these two classes of agents, and again, between agents, 
we run into considerable problems when we try to compare studies uh, that uh, looked at different drugs and try to compare efficacy and safety because the patient populations uh, entered into individual studies are very different. Uh, the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria are very different. So even, even today in, in 2021, it's still somewhat difficult to directly compare these drugs. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna sort of uh, cover this at a very high uh, level at a 30,000 foot level. Um, the, the differences between the two classes are, 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 are quite large with respect to the mechanism of action. They work completely differently. Um, anti-muscarinics or anti-cholinergics are competitive antagonists of acetylcholine um, at the neuromuscular uh, junction. Uh, they are a, a dose-dependent uh, uh, pharmacologic uh, antagonists. Um, the beta-3s work on a completely different receptor uh, uh, through uh, relaxation of smooth muscle during the filling phase, working on adrenergic receptors, specifically the beta-3 receptor, which results in smooth muscle relaxation uh, via a very different molecular pathway uh, than the anti-muscarinics. So uh, although they work similarly and they are indicated for the same uh, condition, overactive bladder, they work completely different uh, on different receptors. And of course, this uh, uh, allows us to, in certain cases, combine these agents uh, and, and several studies have looked at combining an anti-muscarinic uh, and a uh, beta-3 beta uh, agonist. Uh, and it would, it would appear that um, when you combine these agents, you can often uh, improve uh, efficacy with only a marginal change uh, in the adverse event profile. Uh, uh, so so the, the fact that they work via two different uh, pathways uh, is actually advantageous for us, the uh, practitioner, as well as often uh, for the patient. When we look within each of these classes, say within the uh, anti-muscarinic uh, class, um, there are again uh, similarities and differences between the agents. Uh, currently in the United States, we have five or six uh, anti-muscarinics uh, available. Um, there are some differences between these agents. They, they affect different uh, muscarinic receptor uh, subtypes. Uh, that is to say, uh, some are very uh, M3 receptor uh, 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 selective uh, for the M3 receptor subtype. Other affect other muscarinic uh, subtypes in addition to the M3 receptor. Uh, and, and that may account, and I'm, I'm not sure that this is actually uh, documented and, and all universally agreed on, but, but maybe that might affect uh, or at least uh, explain some of their differences in uh, adverse event profiles as, uh, as we'll talk about in just a moment. There are some other differences. The half-life between some of these agents uh, is very different. For example, solifenacin has a very long half-life uh, as opposed to detrol which, or tolteridine, which has a very short half-life. And then some of them are available in different doses and some are not. So dose titration is available with some of these agents and, and, and not so uh, uh, with others. Uh, it, it, beside all of this, or besides all this, as, as in, in the AUA guidelines uh, for overactive bladder, it's pretty clear that there are patients who will respond to one of these agents, but not the other uh, with respect to efficacy and, and even side effect profiles. So uh, even within the anti-muscarinic uh, class, uh, it is worthwhile a trial of, of one or more agents before giving up on these as some patients will uh, have a better response to one of these agents or another uh, as compared to another or have less side effects from one to another. And we don't truly understand uh, why that might be the case, uh, but certainly uh, worth a trial uh, in this class of agents, which has been around uh, for the longest uh, time. The other <clears throat> newer class is the beta-3s. 
uh, of which there are two agents uh, currently available, Mirabegron uh, uh, and Vibegron. Um, there are some uh, similarities between these two drugs as well. Uh, these two drugs both work by the same uh, receptor set uh, through a, a, a beta-3 uh, a, a, a pathway. Uh, both drugs have fairly long uh, half-lives uh, <clears throat> and both drugs have, have no issues taken with or without food. However, there are some subtle differences uh, for example, uh, Vibegron, which is the newer of the two agents, um, uh, uh, does not have any <clears throat> uh, uh, issues on their label with respect to uh, cardiac issues. Uh, uh, there are some subtle uh, mentions on the Mirbegron label with respect to hypertension, but, but none so on the uh, Vibegron label. And uh, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, Vibegron <clears throat> has fewer drug-drug interactions, it would appear, than Mirbegron. And finally, and I find this to be actually quite helpful, um, Vibegron actually has, uh, can be crushed uh, as a pill and it doesn't lose its once daily uh, formulation. So you can actually crush it up and mix it in applesauce or jello for patients who can't tolerate pills. So that's, that's some subtle differences between uh, the beta three. And of, of course, Mirbegron has been around much longer uh, than Vibegron. So we, we, we know the established safety of Mirbegron. It's been around uh, clinically available for over eight years in the United States. Uh, so we have hundreds of thousands of patients that have been treated with this agent. So, so if there was a problem with the uh, drug, we, we certainly would have seen it by now. We don't have that experience so far with, uh, with uh, Vibegron. My Mirbegron again comes in uh, two doses, uh, whereas Vibegron is only a single dose. So that's uh, again, a, a, a subtle difference uh, there. You know, when we, when we look at these agents individually uh, and, and uh, as a class and then, and then individually, uh, there are certain aspects of, of the drugs, and, but also certain aspects of the patient uh, that we consider when, when prescribing these agents. And, and the biggest one right now clearly is, is uh, in the elderly, the concern for cognitive difficulties and dementia. We've known about this for, for many, many, many years since a publication, 1990s, uh, from the group at Penn looking at uh, incident uh, cognitive uh, dysfunction following initiation of antimuscarinic, specifically ditropan. And subsequent studies uh, on large populations uh, have suggested there is some uh, relationship between uh, anticholinergics, antimuscarinics, and incident dementia, as well as uh, aggravating existing cognitive issues. Um, um, uh, um, there's, there's ongoing research uh, and concerns in this area. And in those patients with dementia or, or incident dementia, or these days, <clears throat> all of uh, us clinicians uh, are, are asked by our patients, because this is, this is in, the, in, in the lay literature <clears throat> regarding the risk of dementia and anti-muscarinics, we need to be prepared to answer these questions. And in those particular uh, patients whose, whose concerns are high or who have some incident or have some new cognitive dysfunction or even concerned about cognitive dysfunction, I... I tend to use this as an opportunity to try beta-3s uh, in that population as opposed to anti-muscarinics. Uh, and that's one population where, where uh, the similarities and differences between the two classes uh, have a substantial impact on, on what drug we choose. And of course, there's, there's multiple other um, uh, uh, characteristics that might make us choose one drug over another. Uh, cardiac issues, uh, QT interval uh, concerns, hypertension, drug-drug uh, interactions all uh, might push us towards one drug or another, either in the uh, beta-3 class or in the anti-muscarinic class. Certainly comorbidities 
uh, also impact on, on this, as, as well as constipation. Constipation is a, is a considerable problem in the elderly uh, and in the not so elderly. Uh, and uh, in those patients who um, uh, have a substantial con constipation issue, the, uh, the beta threes don't seem to contribute to constipation. And I, uh, I seem to, I, I, I currently lean towards beta threes in this population um, as well. You know, overall, uh, the concerns for, for adverse events in the antimuscarinic population uh, uh, that, that we're considering prescribing antimuscarinics is very high. Um, that is not only the cognitive effects, but uh, obviously the dry mouth and, and constipation and, and some blurry vision. Uh, and, and those concerns need to be discussed with the patient uh, so that they can make an informed decision on what medication uh, they, can, they can start. So, so, so basically, I, I think to answer your question, I, I rely on the three C's of, of prescribing uh, when looking between beta-3s and anti-muscarinics, those three C's being uh, convenience of daily dosing, uh, cost, uh, which is very different from patient to patient, but electronic medical records allow us to make an informed decision there. And then finally, concerns uh, for adverse events. So that's basically how I look at, at, uh, at, at these drug classes uh, between drugs and uh, across the uh, classes. I hope that was helpful, David. Thank you. Eric, that was great. That was the bulk of your course in about 10 minutes. Um, fantastic. So one more, I want to have another follow-up question regarding your course. I think one of the key elements in the course discusses setting proper <clears throat> expectations regarding overactive bladder treatment and the potential need for further therapy. So, so how should clinicians be incorporating this into practice when caring for overactive bladder patients? Yeah, uh, good question. So managing expectations obviously is very important. These Drugs, uh, overactive bladder drugs, uh, they don't cure a whole lot of uh, people. Uh, we improve symptoms, but we, we, we rarely cure. Uh, and patients need to understand that. Uh, we're, we're aiming for, uh, for improvement in their quality of life. When you look at the drug studies, David, there, there's a high placebo response uh, in, in virtually all of the drug studies. And, and confounding results in short-term drug studies is uh, regression in symptoms over time, that is regression uh, back to their symptoms despite drug therapy uh, over time. And then finally, uh, the natural history of overactive bladder is uh, such that uh, in some patients, uh, it, it does not progress very much. In other patients, it progresses considerably. We don't understand why. So, so managing their expectations with respect to long-term drug therapy is, is important. Uh, they may need to come back and change dose, or they may need to change agent, or they may need to change therapies uh, on to, and move on to third-line therapies. In, in these individuals uh, with, uh, with overactive bladder. I'll tell you what I found helpful is there, there's been some research over the years. Uh, Linda Brubaker's group uh, years ago uh, started administering a questionnaire called the Saga Questionnaire. And basically uh, what this questionnaire uh, deals with is, uh, or, or queries the patient on is, is uh, their basically individual goals and goal achievement. And, and we would think uh, simply that that everybody's goal achievement in overactive bladder is simply to reduce frequency, urgency, and incontinence, but that actually winds up not being the case. We actually used this questionnaire and, and patient goal achievement in some of the work that I did on, on some of the original neurogenic Botox studies. Uh, and, and as it turns out, uh, patients, um, uh, what they desire is not necessarily what we think they desire. Um, and and the, the, the details of that study is not particularly important, but, but, what, but what is a very poignant example is we we see overactive bladder uh, as this disease or this condition, uh, symptom syndrome of frequency, urgency, and cost. But for example, 
Paul is a very poignant example. There are many patients who, who have nocturia and they're coming in to see us for nocturia three or four times. And when, when you ask or, or utilize uh, patient reported goal achievement questions, such as why are you here? What's, what's the most important uh, thing that we can do for you? What's your symptom that bothers you the most that we can help? Uh, some of these patients with nocturia will tell you, well, I don't care how many times I go to the bathroom during the day because I can go to the bathroom. But it's, it's waking up three or four times at night. It kills my sleep. Uh, I, I can't be productive in the day. And, and, and that sort of transitions or changes the way we look at these patients. Now I'm dealing with a patient with bothersome nocturia and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll work on their daytime symptoms somewhat, but it, it gives me a, a license to really work on their nocturia symptoms. So uh, I'll tell you that uh, managing expectations and, and understanding why your patient's in the office, what's their primary goal uh, is, is very important uh, in managing these patients uh, successfully. Great, thank you so much. So, so Vic, let me ask you a follow-up question. <clears throat> Mrs. Jones is in your office. She has classic overactive bladder symptoms. She's never had therapy and she states right off, I don't wanna do behavioral therapy, I want medication. H how do you discuss with her the option of an anticholinergic, a beta-3 agonist? What, what goes in that conversation? So I, I think that uh, Eric summarized very, uh, very nicely the differences between the medications. So we can start with a discussion of that uh, or like that. At the end of the day, those three C's that Eric spoke about are going to be the most important thing. I will be honest with you that I have a fairly strong bias that all things otherwise equal my preference would be to, to use a beta-3 agonist as a first-line therapy because of safety and side effects. Again, assuming the patient doesn't have a potential safety issue with, um, with a beta-3 beta agonist, and that can happen, but it's, it's unusual, but, but can happen. And now that we have two to choose from, we have a little bit more uh, flexibility. Um, Anticholinergics, I like to use in combination with beta-3 agonists. And of course, I'm, this is a discussion on the, uh, the non-high-risk neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction patient where there's much more evidence on anticholinergics in that group. So we talk a bit about the differences between the two, but more oftentimes than not, the patient, my patients choose to start with a beta-3 agonist than I suspect that it's probably due to some of my own biases, to be honest with you. Great. So, Eric, your course also discussed potential, the future pharmacologic pathways and therapies for overactive bladder. So could you give us a peek into what we might be seeing in the future? Do you have a sense if are any of these therapies we might be seeing soon, in a year, two years, five years, or it's still unclear? where we might see some of these future options. You know, we're, we're, we're all waiting for, for that magic uh, pill that will uh, uh, treat all overactive bladder patients. I'm, I'm sad to say uh, right now in 2021, that magic pill uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't exist, uh, although there's lots of ongoing uh, pathways uh, that are being examined in, in basic science laboratories and, and animal models. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on a few of them. It's important to understand there's we don't truly understand how overactive bladder 
uh, comes about in patients. We don't understand the true pathophysiology. And although there's lots of theoretical targets, uh, potential targets and pathways at the brain level, spinal cord level, smooth muscle level, peripheral nerve level, um, none of these are actually 100% uh, uh, the uh, golden key for overactive bladder. That's, that's becoming uh, abundantly clear. You know, the problem is Carl, Carl Eric Anderson says is something called uroselectivity. That means that we don't have any agents that are selective only for the urinary tract. So we give these drugs, uh, all these drugs uh, and, and the drugs in development, and, and they don't affect just the bladder. They have collateral effects everywhere. We can, we can dose antimuscarinics quite high or beta-3s, um, uh, but by the time we get to uh, their absolute effects on the bladder where they uh, reduce bladder contractility to zero, they have collateral effects elsewhere, which are not tolerable. Uh, so, so we're still working there uh, quite a bit. There's a long litany of failed types of agents uh, because of uroselectivity. For example, uh, potassium channel openers or calcium channel blockers both work wonderful in the lab uh, to reduce uh, bladder overactivity uh, on smooth muscle strips. But unfortunately, uh, in humans, they cause collateral and, and intolerant uh, side effects, including hypotension. Uh, there's a couple of more beta-3s uh, that have recently been abandoned. Uh, Ritobegron and Salabegron were both had suspended development programs, uh, either because of lack of funding uh, because of, or because lack of uh, efficacy. Uh, NK antagonists were, were uh, interesting molecules about 10 years ago, but they failed uh, uh, to show any efficacy versus uh, tolteridine. A uh, couple of things that, that might be of, of interest uh, going forward in the next, say, uh, five to 10 years. Uh, there's currently a development program for a combination pill of tolteridine and pilocarpine with, with the goal of, of reducing uh, dry mouth via pilo, uh, pilocarpine, uh, but maintaining uh, the uh, favorable uh, overactive bladder effects of uh, tolteridine. And that's in phase three development for the last uh, few years. And then just looking at a couple of pathways, um, there's some ongoing studies looking at cannabinoid uh, agonists, that is the, the, the uh, CBD, THC uh, type uh, agents, um, uh, those are basically in the lab, uh, not even at the uh, animal level yet. Um, uh, TRP drugs, a transient receptor potential antagonist, uh, such as TRIP-V1 or TRIP-M8 uh, agents, uh, antagonists are being studied in early phase. They seem to show some uh, efficacy in the lab, uh, maybe in some animal models, but but nothing clinical yet. And then uh, I'll toot my own horn only because it's some interesting work. We're looking at gene therapy uh, it, uh, in a compound called uh, Euro902. Uh, this is um, uh, a, a uh, basically a plasmid vector uh, that results in expression of the human BK channel alpha subunit. And that sounds like a bunch of bobbly boop uh, basic science stuff, but basically the BK channel uh, controls uh, membrane stability and the action potential. And if we can increase potassium uh, through the BK channel, we can reduce the potential uh, of the cell to activate. Uh, that is to reduce the excitability of the smooth muscle cell at the bladder. So this is truly, if we could, uh, in theory, reduce the excitability of the bladder smooth muscle cell itself, uh, by injection of this gene plasmid uh, vector, uh, then it's actually uroselective. And there's been a very small study done uh, with intravesical 
uh, as well as intra, uh, I'm sorry, intravesical installation as well as intravesical injection, which shows very modest effects. And, and currently it's on a, uh, it's, it's, it's currently being studied in a large phase two study uh, by uh, Eurovance. So we look forward to that, but that, that, that looks like the only thing that we've currently got that's, that's Euroselective and, and hopefully it'll show some efficacy as well as a good safety profile. But that's about it, David, that we have currently in 2021. Great, great. Thanks so much, Eric. So let's now transition to the various third tier options to treat overactive bladder once oral therapies fail. So Dr. Nitti, how do we define refractory overactive bladder? You have to have had OAD for a certain period of time. You have to have failed a certain number or type of oral medications. And you have to have been on one of those oral medications for a certain period of time to get the diagnosis of refractory overactive bladder. Uh, well, let's um, start by what is it? It is failure to respond to behavioral and medical therapy. Um, now, what does that mean? Uh, how long do you have to be on, on a medication? Uh, I would say that a reasonable trial of a particular medication would be four to eight weeks, assuming there's no issues with side effects. And I probably tend to stay more on the four-week side, although most clinical trials were eight weeks. About 80% of patients who are going to respond see a response within about two weeks. So I think four weeks is reasonable, eight weeks if you wanna be very conservative. How many medications does one need to fail? Well, I would say, and, and I, I think this has changed a little bit, uh, but I would say if you fail a beta-3 and an anti-muscarinic or the two in combination, um, that would be refractory overactive bladder. Now, I always, when I start to discuss quote-unquote third-line treatments, I always put, and it's not really third-line, it's second-line, but I make sure the patient has had the option to have uh, dual therapy. Uh, and as far as the time period is concerned, if we look at most clinical trials, patients need to have had symptoms of overactive bladder for at least three months. So I think that's a, a, fair, a fair starting point. Great. So Dr. Kobashi, you are the director for a course that focuses on the subject titled Refractory Overactive Bladder, How to Select Third-Line Therapies and Optimize Outcomes. I think it's probably the best course at the AUA, but I'm, I might be a little biased because I'm also involved with that course. Um, I think part of the key is, is picking the right therapy for the right patient. So there are three options for third line therapy, tibial nerve stimulation, Botulinum toxin, and sacral neuromodulation. So let's start with PTNS. So speak to the pros and cons of PTNS. Are there certain patients you think are best for this therapy or certain patients you try to avoid using this therapy on? And how do you optimize the use of this therapy in the office setting? Any tips and tricks you want to share? Yeah, so um, David, to your point, uh, I think that each of these three options have pros and cons. And I, you know, generally speaking, will we'll counsel my patients on all of these early on in the sort of algorithm, if you will. I think I want to point out one thing about the overactive bladder guidelines, one of the um, modifications to the most recent version is that you don't actually have to treat this as an algorithm. In other words, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, people will come in and say, I'm not doing meds. And so except for the insurance uh, issues and things like that, that, that are external things that uh, kind of 
dictate how we do things, you technically, for, as far as the overactive bladder guidelines are concerned, could go on to third line therapies earlier on um, without failing medications, for instance. Um, but let's talk about PTNS. Of the three third line therapies, it is the most conservative of the three, perhaps. Uh, it is, uh, the pros of it are that, well, basically what it is, is basically like acupuncture. And I think what's very important in your shared decision-making with your patients is to provide them with all the information to make the right decision for them, okay? Um, so PTNS, uh, it's like acupuncture. I tell them it's like modern day acupuncture. You get almost like a acupuncture size needle that's placed in the ankle where the nerves that control the bladder and um, that control the bowel, the bladder and the bowel um, end basically. Uh, and it's 30 minutes once a week for 12 weeks. And that is one of the cons actually, because in all practicality, people don't love driving into your office and paying for parking and fighting traffic uh, to come in once a week for 12 weeks. And then approximately monthly thereafter for a, um, uh, uh, maintenance therapy. The pros, however, are that it's very minimally invasive and the success rate is very reasonable. So I think, you know, for those patients who are refractory to conservative measures, who want to do something, but they don't want anything too invasive, it's a nice thing to do. I tell them, come in and you can play your words with friends or read a book for 30 minutes and give yourself a little time. Um, there aren't really patients that I avoid this on, except for perhaps patients who have a lot of peripheral edema or peripheral neuropathy, um, that sort of thing might uh, preclude us from doing it. But otherwise, I, there aren't really patients who we um, would avoid. Um, and the tips and tricks, I think it's really important to have this fit into the flow of your office because it does tie up a room, frankly, um, for 30 minutes, actually more than 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so. So you have to be prepared. I think it's really great to engage your staff to be really involved in this because they feel um, very empowered to be um, part of successful treatments for your patient and that the patients. And that goes also with the sacral neuromodulation, which we'll talk about shortly. Great. And let's move on to both line of toxic. The same set of questions. Pros okay. and cons for botulinum toxin for a fractured overactive bladder. Certain patients you think are best for this therapy. Certain, certain patients you want to avoid using this therapy on. How do you optimize it in the office setting? And again, any tips or tricks for optimizing it when you are doing it? Yeah. So uh, similarly, there are pros and cons. So pros, first of all, this is an office-based procedure, um, generally speaking. Now, there are, a few, there are a few exceptions of patients who come in uh, who just know that they're not going to tolerate that. So um, every once in a while, we'll do some in the operating room. But generally speaking, this can be done in the office setting. Um, you know, I usually tell the patients that they'll be there with us for about an hour by the time they get in and do paperwork and get set up and the anesthetic, the local anesthetic sits in their bladder, but they can drive themselves, which is really great. It's um, very predictable that generally speaking, it lasts on the average of about six months. So now we've gotten into the habit of just making their six month appointment when they come in. Uh, and as they're leaving, we make their next six month appointment. That's sort of a placeholder so that uh, if, if the symptoms, as they approach their six month, if their symptoms haven't returned yet, they can push it out, but at least it sort of tickles their brain that they it's time to be thinking about it. Um, and that way we don't drop them through the cracks. Um, the cons, of course, are um, more patient perception, I think, than 
actual uh, problems. I mean, UTIs are a potential um, um, complication, if you will, or sequela that aren't isn't necessarily directly related to the onobotulinum toxin, but the procedure itself and instrumentation. Um, also, the per perception that urinary retention or incomplete bladder emptying might require intermittent catheterization. And a lot of patients, you kind of have to talk them off the ledge about that. Truth be told, that only happens in less than 5% of patients, generally speaking, and it's a real clinical decision whether or not you even need to start them on intermittent catheterization if they're not emptying completely. Um, and I, what I mean by that is if they're not emptying completely, but they're not symptomatic from it, they're not bothered by it, they don't have to start an intermittent catheterization or be catheterized. So I think it's a matter of taking the time up front to counsel your patients and sort of allay those concerns that they might have that might sort of... Um, limit them from choosing this option that would be quite good for them. As far as I, who's best for this therapy, historically, we would do this in neurogenic patients um, because they didn't, they weren't eligible to uh, receive sacral neuromodulation, which we'll talk about just because of the MRI compatibility issue. Now I think all comers, this, it was never, it was not limited to neurogenic patients, but neurogenic patients were almost limited to on a botulinum toxin. So, um, but as far as patients who I think are best for this therapy, again, I think it's just a matter of, you know, telling them the pros and cons and really talking them through all these potential things that could come their way. Uh, if they, if they use on a botulinum toxin, the only people I might think about, you know, um, not really even avoiding, but, you know, really think about the, impact is, is men with, uh, prostatism outlet obstruction or any, you know, baseline incomplete bladder emptying or LUTs, they may have an urgency component, but you might push them over the edge and put those patients into retention. So it's very important to really consider all of that. Uh, same with women who might have some obstructive symptoms after a sling, for instance, uh, I think that that's something to consider, but you know, really uh, it's a matter of balancing all the pros and cons of each of these three. As far as tips and tricks are concerned, there are a variety of different um, needles that you can use. And, and I think one of the best um, tips and tricks I can tell you is to get the proper scope. So there is a, um, there's a rigid scope. That's an injection scope that makes it very easy to do it with, you know, just one operator, one, one person. Um, and it's very simple and you can do the whole thing in, you know, 60 seconds, honestly, uh, the flexible scope that we usually use for men, it's a little bit more cumbersome because you need three hands. You need to drive the scope. You need to put the needle in and you need somebody to inject. So, um, but we use that for men and they do very, very well in the office setting. Um, so I think those are, you know, getting the right scope can make your life a lot easier and getting your patients, uh, your, your staff, uh, involved and they can set everything up. I mean, I can walk in and everything's drawn up and, and we just go. So I think that's, um, that's what I would say about onobotulinum toxin. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point of having the staff get things ready for you so you can just look yeah. in and get it done. Um, so, Eric, there is a poster presented by Dr. Jackie Zillier from the Cleveland Clinic yesterday that discussed patient reported an onset of symptom improvement after onobotulinum toxin A injections for overactive bladder. What were the highlights of this presentation and how, how will you apply this to information when you're talking to your patients? Yeah, so it was an interesting uh, poster, uh, David. The um, the poster basically looked at time of uh, onset of Botox. We, we, we know that Botox doesn't work right away. Uh, we inject it in the office and then there's some neuronal processing. Uh, uh, it, takes, it takes some time uh, to, to have a therapeutic effect. And the Cleveland Clinic group uh, basically looked at how long that effect would take. Uh, for example, we know the patients 
uh, we know the side effect of Botox of, of, of urinary retention does, doesn't happen right away. So if you inject Botox and the patient has urinary retention that day, it's not from the Botox because it hasn't had an effect yet. So what these folks did was they uh, gave uh, each patient, uh, 51 consecutive patients, they gave them a PGII questionnaire, which basically measures how much better or how much worse you are uh, for every day for 21 days following injection. And uh, then they looked at the data uh, through something called a jitter plot, which is not particularly important. But the, the take-home point was, David, that the, the median time to first improvement was at three days, and the median time to maximum improvement appeared to be about seven days. Now, this was not corroborated with diaries, and they did not look at post-void residuals. Uh, so we don't, we don't have that data, but at least we have some inkling that, uh, that Botox has some effect at three days and has a better effect uh, at seven days. So at least uh, the Cleveland Clinic group who's usually on top of everything uh, was on top of this as well and, and uh, gave us some very useful clinical data. Great, thank you so much. Okay, Dr. Kobashi, so let's move on to sacral neuromodulation. Again, yes. same question. Okay. Pros and cons, certain patients you think are best, patients you wanna avoid, and then how do you optimize the use of this? Maybe talk about um, patients' issues with programming the device, issues like that. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So pros and cons. So pros, I, I think one of the biggest pros, now it's MRI compatible. Uh, so the lead is MRI compatible, whichever device you use. Um, there's also the option for chargeable and rechargeable, non-rechargeable and, and rechargeable batteries. So it sort of fits all patient uh, needs and, and desires. Um, I think that the MRI compatibility has, uh, you know, cracked the nut open. And so neurogenic patients who might not have been eligible for it before are now eligible. So the pros, pros are that I think the biggest pro when you compare it to the others is that though you have something implanted in your body, you've got a five to seven year battery life. If it's the non-rechargeable and maybe you know, upwards of 10 to 15 years of, uh, of life, if it's rechargeable, um, I think that's very attractive to patients because they can just put it in and, and sort of forget about it and not be thinking about it every six months or every week. Okay. Uh, the uh, success rates are actually uh, on the higher side as far as comparing these to the other uh, options. And I think that's also a pro. Cons, you've got something implanted in your body. There's a hassle factor up front. You have to go through a test period, which I call the test drive for patients to give them some friendly language and it's not so intimidating to them. Um, but that that you've got something in your body that can um, get infected or malfunction or have some mechanical problems or migrate, that sort of thing, which requires a procedure, not a major surgery or anything, but a procedure to address. So those are cons for this. Um, it's also trying to get over, you know, the patient's concern about hearing that you're putting a device in their body. I call it a pacemaker that way. It's a little friendly or something that they're more familiar with. So that's the pros and cons. Are there certain patients that I think are better for this therapy? Well, I, there's one big, there's one obvious group, and that is the patients who also have bowel issues. Um, so if they've got what we call dual incontinence, which is accidental bowel leakage and urinary problems, then those are the patients who I think would best benefit from um, sacral modulation over the other two. Um, while PTNS might address that, Botox won't even touch the bowel issues. So um, other than that, I think that, um, you know, uh, there, there are patients that I would avoid it on. Well, not, not really, unless they've had you know, extensive back surgery way low and they're concerned about it, if they've got a lot of hardware, um, there aren't really any um, 
contraindications to this, except for, you know, scuba diving below 30 feet for however that came about. But, um, and then something called diathermy therapy, which I don't think I've ever had a patient who's had diathermy therapy, but as far as patients to avoid it on, you know, the MRI issue was the biggest issue before, and that no longer is a problem. So not, not really that I would uh, avoid it on anyone. Um, and how do I optimize this therapy? And I think this is the, this is the key that we really talked about this a lot in the course and in, in one minute, I don't have time to go over it, but I think um, it's, you know, there's, there's different ways to do a test stimulation. I think that's the big thing is really um, making it fit in the flow of your practice, right? So if, if a percutaneous uh, nerve stimulation in the office setting if it fits your flow and your staff is ready and set to go, that's a fine thing to do because then if they if they do well on that test stimulation, they can have the whole thing implanted in one setting in the operating room versus doing it staged in the operating room, first stage and second stage. I think the key thing is really engaging your staff, your staff and really leaning on the representatives from the company actually to make uh, the flow in your clinic less disruptive. Um, and, this, and additionally, if you engage your staff, they feel very important and empowered. I mean, they are very important and empowered to help their patients and be a big part of the patient's um, success. Um, but they also can really take the load off. You know, the clinician can't be in there doing the reprogramming and all of that stuff. Um, and I guess, you know, again, circling back to leaning on your representatives, I think that they can be a huge help to, you know, reprogramming and interrogating the device if there's any issues that need to be done or any teaching that needs to be done. So sorry to speak so fast, but trying to get that in under the wire and hand the baton back to David. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So Drs. Nidhi, Kobashi, and Rovner, uh, thank you for participating in the panel. It's great to do this with close, close friends. The only downside is we weren't there together actually in Vegas. Um, this has been a great discussion on a very timely and important topic. We all touch on some very important things, including the evaluation of patients with suspected overactive bladder, the use of behavioral and physical therapy, how to optimize the use of oral pharmac pharmacotherapy, and the importance, really, really importance of managing patient expectations in regard to improving versus curing overactive bladder symptoms. And a great discussion by Dr. Kobashi of the various third tier therapies for overactive bladder and how these can be optimally implemented in a clinical practice. Thank you all for helping make this I think, a very successful program, but thank you to all the attendees for listening. Hope everyone has a great day. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank Thanks you. for the invite. Thanks.